Hi everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, a by now weekly podcast starring Gaz. Hello Gaz. Hello Baz, how are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you, and me Baz. And uh, the topic for this week is art in role-playing games. Not role-playing games as art, but the actual art. Paintings, drawings, uh, sketches, scribbles, all of that kind of stuff. So loads to talk about and I suppose it's going to be a bit weird because talking about art on a podcast is a bit like dancing about architecture it might be somewhat tricky to follow but you know we'll put some links in the old show notes afterwards and um, give people a couple of steers where we can so you can get an idea of the visuals that we might be talking about today so um guys uh art in role playing where do we start probably start at the beginning so it's a funny one in that there is art i think you've mentioned before that it could game could just easily have been a textbook but there is art in there so that's something to draw you in so I like stuff. One of the first memories I've got is the Liz Danforth art in Tunnels and Trolls. Kind of quite line art and a bit dotty. But it um, that fired my imagination probably more than a lot of the text did. There was spells like Take That Euthine and other bits that drew me in. But initially what we got me buying that game was a flick through and a look at the pictures. So do you think that was an intentional thing when game designers started? Do you just want to break up the text? Or why did we even I, have um, art, you know? I don't know. Um, I mean, I've studied my role-playing history and I've looked at where it came from and, and, and the illustrations bit doesn't get a whole lot of time. It, I mean, they are kind of like, you know, they originally war games rules, weren't they? Yeah. And war games rules are not renowned for their art or illustrations. There are plenty of diagrams um, and maybe some photos if it's like, you know, World War Two or fairly modern day. But they're not renowned for having loads of illustrations. I mean, those things were as dry as dust. So I think the thing to remember is the first big proper role-playing hardback, as we know it today, was the Monster Manual. So that was the first thing out for AD&D, funnily enough. We went for a year with just a Monster Manual and no rules, which is very peculiar. But, but clearly that had to have illustrations in it. And I just, I just think books sort of followed suit immediately afterwards. But, I mean, I remember that Tunnels and Trolls book as well. Uh, I remember Liz Danforth Art and liking it very much too. And... One of the things I liked about it was it was a bit cartoony. And back in the day, the Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, they all had this. They had real variety in their art, and they weren't afraid to put a couple of little cartoons in there and a bit of humour too. There were some things about adventurers dressed as mice trying to sneak into a temple with, like, cones on their noses and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it's, it's scattered all over those early books, um, with one big exception, which I'll come to later. But... Um, I think it is there just for fun, really, and I think that some of the very early art is of variable quality, should we say that? I mean, you know, art's all subjective, you can like what you like, and you know, what I like doesn't mean that's what you like, um, but I really like some of the stuff in the original D&D books, how could you not? You can't like it all, and those early games that had a distinct art style if you didn't like that style i didn't get into them and i think actually looking back that's one of the reasons i didn't get into RuneQuest. i wasn't really a fan of the RuneQuest art i quite like the cover and we're talking about the old games workshop import box purple edges i think it was RuneQuest quest 2 yeah yeah uh, woman fighting a lizard which seems to happen quite a lot um, i like that but the internal stuff well i, I preferred the tunnels and trolls art yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of points there which we'll we'll have to pick up as we go along, I think. But uh, one of them is kind of judging the book by its cover. So there's, there's several games, something like uh, Three Sixteen Beyond the Stars has got Paul Bourne, who's uh, a good artist. I I admire, 
and it's got a really great cover which drew me in and then you flick through it and the internal art's pretty poor it mm. literally looks like it's drawn by a five to eight year old or something I mean a lot of people like that mm. but that turned me right off that game so I'm wondering how many games like you with RuneQuest I've just not bothered taking up just because of how it looked you know what I mean there might have been some really great words in there but yeah, I think there's loads actually, mate. I remember 316 thinking exactly the same. I mean, Paul Bourne's stuff is very stylish. Uh, I don't think he's done a bad cover ever. Um, and it was just jarring, wasn't it, to have that st- one style on the cover and the complete opposite end of the spectrum on the inside. Uh, you know, if it had been the same all the way through, either style, I think, you know, f- fair enough, top marks. But it was like a sort of children's exercise book on the inside and it and it turned it even more stupid than the original premise stupid as in you know like just ridiculous and gonzo and over the top rather than ignorant um but yeah that that put me off and you know covers especially can do that i mean people do judge role-playing books by their covers hugely um and if you anyone remembers our last podcast where i was talking about how earth dawn is the greatest game ever i still stick by that but it might have one of the worst covers ever that first edition of Earththorn had what I can only describe as half a female statue's head in a puddle of milk. Yeah. And I still don't entirely know what it is. It was just dreadful. The inside of the book is full of good things, but oh no, what a turn-off. Terrible. And and they didn't really get it much better in any pre- any successive edition either. So the only thing I don't like about Earththorn is the first few molecules of the thing. Underneath that is great. Yeah, I think it's um, the mist swamps or something, but how are you supposed to get that from the the cover art? I don't know. I don't know. No one knows. To talk about RuneQuest a little bit more, one of the interesting things I found about that is that that, that I always had some pretty awful art. I think back in the day, in inverted commas, a lot of people just got the mates or or did it themselves to do some art because, Mm. like, you know, there wasn't such a thing as a jobbing RPG artist. You just tried to get someone to do it, and you didn't have the cash to pay someone five hundred quid or whatever to do you a, a nice cover and stuff. You just did some art with whatever you could do, or you found some. There was no like deviant art or anything like that, or internet to go looking for people. You just had to kind of pick up people you knew, or like through professional contacts, or just friends, or whatever else. So there was even a campaign at one point which was quite mean, and I can't remember what the guy's name is. Uh, it was something like Dabinsky or Dabinsky or something like that and he did some of the the Elder Secrets stuff and other things for RuneQuest and they, they started a chop his hands off campaign because the, there was just such a what? it was like something like <laughs> chop Dabinsky's hands off campaign you'll have to try and find it on the internet but it was the such with the strength of feeling that how bad his art was it wasn't just you know poor quality and looked like a five to eight year old it? it was actually like a bad five year old but <laughs> it was really awful which Again, you don't sort of start a campaign to cut someone's hands off because of that, but that just gives you an indication of how poorly people viewed that art. And Glantha itself has always really struggled to have some good art. You know, there'd be odd pieces. Um, when mm-hmm. Request Three came out, there were some good covers from that, and they were kind of linked. It was the same adventures mm-hmm. at different stages and different places. And I thought that was really cool, having some theme running through. But uh, another odd thing I found about Request now, or, or the Glantha Worlds is they've started paying people and getting some proper pieces put together. Uh, mm. But because there's this backlog of 20 to 30 years of history and people have, because you had no real good art, you sort of, you make your own ideas in your head about what things look like. And now they're producing stuff saying, and this is what the Juristelli look like and this is what these guys look like. I'm sort of thinking, no, they don't. 
Like I, I've had, you know, several decades of working out what all this stuff works like in my imagination where you play games, and now later in the day you present me with a different picture. So I don't know if you've got art, does it have to come first? Yeah, that that is peculiar. I mean, I know how it works professionally, um, and role playing games are not necessarily going to use the professional publishing model, which is fine. But you know, normally you would have an art director who would give you some kind of instructions as to what kind of pieces they want. And, and that's still how it works at Wizards of the Coast and Paizo and the big players. But I absolutely think you're right. I mean, I think back in the days of the 70s and the 80s, you had your network of friends and you had a, maybe a phone, um, but you didn't know who to call on it. And uh, it was probably hard enough just doing basic layout and using typewriters and print stick and all the rest of it. You would take what art you could get and it's a good space filler, if nothing else. Um, and, and Glorantha's really, really interesting because I've never seen much in the way of art for Glorantha. I've not looked for it. It may well be there. And, you know, we, you and I have been talking about getting a Glorantha game going recently. And I, I've had to ask a couple of questions about, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? Can you give me any, you know, a little a quick tour of it so, so I can get my head around the visuals? Because they're important. Uh, you know, a game in the imagination, it's really important to get a grip on the visuals. And there isn't a huge amount to go on. And, if I start looking for stuff and it's just in a style that I don't like, I'd find it off-putting. Mm. I really will. And, and I think, you know, maybe Glorantha has put people... It's clearly put off people who want to chop off artists' hands. That seems to be a bit of a harsh <laughs> reaction. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a world I can't visualise very well. The, the, most th- the best thing I can remember about the original RuneQuest stuff was that map that was in RQ2, which was clean black-and-white map, really evocative... Um, and it wasn't just woods and hills and stuff like that. It had the devil's block in yeah, it. Yeah. I remember that down by Prax. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that you would pore over, looking for the detail, trying to figure out, you know, how it all related to each other, what it might mean. And some of the names are clearly very evocative anyway, but just the layout of the land um, made it look like a place to want to an adventure. And, and cartography is a special kind of art that role-playing books have to utilise, really, to make the best out of it. So, yep, with you on that one, mate. Um, what, what else you got from the really early days then that maybe put you off a game or got you into it? Well, I guess I got this sort of like love-hate affair with the World of Darkness, which isn't, you know, back in back in the days we have been talking about, but it is still sort of 80s, I guess, early 90s. Mm. Uh, and they have, they have a problem just, I think, stylistically in that they have font-itis, so they have to start every new paragraph with a different font or every different <laughs> thing, that gets a bit jarring. But also their artworks all over the place. So they have one artist uh, called Scar or something like that, and they just can't abide, probably the people love. Uh, and they'll probably not quite get on with some of the artists I think are really nice. Like the Tim Bradstreet stuff, for example. Oh, beautiful. I thought it was yeah, really good. Yeah, I mean, it's it. all done on photographs. Yeah. He traces, mm. you know, that which mm. you know, I could view as cheating, but then I'm not a professional artist. Professional artist I have spoken to who said, but the way he sets up the the composition and everything is what makes the photos so fair enough but yeah it's the, the inconsistency I think of the world of darkness stuff put me off to a greater a lesser extent you kind of pick the bits that you do like and ignore some of the others but I'd much prefer something like uh, more recently the one ring that's just got a consistent feel mm-hmm. through all of it so I don't know whether some people mm-hmm. like the variation and get a different style and pick the one that suits them best but for me even if I'm not mad keen on the art if it's consistent throughout or has got a similar style throughout, then I get on with that a lot more. I can sort of sit myself in the world, if you know what I mean, and 
fix what it looks like mm. in the head. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, World of Darkness, I, I have exactly the same opinion. I like the Tim Bradstreet stuff. I remember the cover to Chicago by Night, all that stuff. He did some some good pieces that could fit into cyberpunk shadow run kind of worlds as well you know just people with guns cabled into their foreheads is never a bad thing but inside the books across oh, i don't know how many books white wolf got through in that splurge in the 90s but it must be well into the hundreds and it all looked like it was done in charcoal which was just you know difficult and sometimes it was illegible i mean wraith was almost famously <laughs> illegible yeah. You couldn't even read the words that were in the book. And, and White Wolf books were nothing if not a good read. He used to really enjoy that kind of stuff, but very, very tricky. And and I think they were they were shooting for atmospheric, which totally understandable given the setting that they were pushing. Um, but atmospheric can quickly become illegible, and, and that's not good. If it doesn't get your, your brain firing as a potential GM, you're never going to show it to the players, um, whether through your description or just by showing them the pages in the book. And and I guess my opinion on a lot of stuff is going to be if it doesn't make it out of the book and onto the gaming table what was it doing in there in the first place yeah. and I would say that a lot of White Wolf art would fall into that category but um, talking about that kind of one unique vision that goes all the way through a game books I suppose from my fairly trad world that would be something like Planescape which had a single artist across every book they ever did for it over quite a few books as well which was Tony DiTalizzi and I'm probably pronouncing that really badly uh, but check him out just put in Planescape Artist he's still working he does the Spiderwick Chronicles I think I want to say um, and people love his stuff I'm not that sold on it it's a little bit fey for me and a little bit uh, I suppose childlike um, and that, that's not supposed to be an insult it's just that's it looks a bit like a children's book um, but it is very evocative and I think for tens of thousands of gamers of Planescape they probably can never play Planescape without seeing things the way he presented them. And they're probably, all you've got to do is put them in a situation and say you see such and such a creature in such and such a locale and they start colouring in their minds straight away because it will look exactly like the Tony Dottolizzi art. Because I don't think anyone else really did much for that line. So if you love it, then that's going to be even better. More awesome source turned up to 11. If you don't like that stuff, you might never pick it up. And and I was a little bit against his art style. It's not my preference, so I never really picked up any Planescape, and I suspect I'm the lesser for it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that happens. Uh, there's um, there's kind of another uh, point as well about uh, having too much art, really, rather than not having enough of the right sort. I'm just thinking of stuff like uh, that's got tie-ins. So mm. they think of the original uh, Feng Shui or something like Legend of the Five Rings or those sort of games. They've got a uh, you know, hundreds of, or thousands of cards now because they're all tied into some card game or something, or even War Machine, which has got like a you know, tons of art for its, its yeah. war game. Yeah. So you've got this embarrassment of riches of stuff to pick from. But as you say, for, for some things, like uh, I'm thinking, like even going back to Earth Dawn on the item there, like the Jeff Lobb and Sticky Stuff, or um, what was it called? Jan Janet Asilio, I think it's called. I liked her as well. Yeah. There was tons of stuff yes, where right, I you, remember. you meet a Jehothra. And that doesn't mean much to your, your D&D player, but you can stick the, the Jeff Loverstein art down and go, that's what it looks like, and put that picture in someone's head, and that's mm. pretty good. But all that art there has been directed for a specific person. Someone said, what does this thing look like? And I, I, I seem to remember the Monster Nomicon for the original D&D uh, or D20 version of uh, the, the War Machine stuff, the Iron Kingdom stuff. What they actually did there was the, someone drew all the pictures first, and then they made stats afterwards. 
based on yeah. what the pictures were, yeah, and yeah, that yeah. sounds cool. So conversely, you've got things like Legend of the Five Rings or those sort of games, and they've got so much art, but a lot of that seems just put in randomly. It's not tied mm. in as closely, you know what I mean? So they're, they're kind of talking about Scorpion Clan, and they've got this one-pager on this guy and what he's doing, and then they just picked a generic Scorpion Clan card and put that art in, and it's, you know, got some ninja mm. with two fiery swords, and the art's about, uh, the text, sorry, is all about some diplomat who's fooling some crab into doing X, Y, and Z. So almost having too much art, it can be a less focused or a bit of distraction itself. Yep. Yeah, totally agree. And and that art in particular, that Legend of the Five Rings stuff, is really good art. I mean, it's technically excellent. There's some superb images. Um, and I think they share artists as well with the original Iron Kingdom stuff. The original Iron Kingdom stuff was Matt Wilson and Brian Snoddy. Yeah. Um, and I really like their artwork. It's it's Again, it's that kind of crisp black and white line art that I, I, appeals to me. I just like that kind of stuff. And I know they did stuff for Five Rings and for Shadow Fist as well. So it's good stuff, but you're absolutely right. If you're just going to cut and paste it into your pages, almost like scatter it through the books, but it bears no relation to the text you're talking about, then it's pretty for pretty's sake, which is fine to an extent, but you're paying a reasonable amount of money for your role-playing book, I guess, and and what you want is form and function, but it's got to be functional. Um, And... You know the the art from the original D and D books used to serve as bookmarks for me. I mean, I could remember where the spying rules were compared to the picture that was on the opposite page. Yeah. They worked really well for that. But in stuff like Legend of the Five Rings and um, uh, and maybe even Deadlands stuff like that, the art is is not it's not capturing my imagination enough to remind me where to turn to in the book because it doesn't relate to that chapter you know when you when you read the description of a huckster in deadlands which is uh, someone who deals with evil spirits and plays poker with them for magic spells i mean if you can't get a decent picture out of that i'd be astonished as any artist like that's your art direction and they have got decent pictures but they're never in the huckster sections <laughs> they're, they're always over in the vehicle section <laughs> and it's just it's just randomly tossed together that might be a layout thing more than an art thing i'm not sure but there's definitely a time mate or i completely agree where there's too much art and and my current contender for too much art not enough imagination is numenera um and possibly the strange as well although i haven't investigated that so fully people talk about numenera as if it's the most beautiful book ever now i've only got it on pdf and maybe my screen isn't doing it justice but i do not see what all the fuss is about what i do see is a huge amount of load time in my poor pdf reader just to bring up what looks like the album covers of 70s prog rock bands with some people floating around in it and it's it's not what i'm getting from the text no it, you know there's some decent imagery in there uh, and you know i could probably pick a little portfolio and show people what stuff looks like but it's n- it doesn't marry up with the words for me uh, and I, and i don't find it spectacularly good i think it's okay i think it's functional but it's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing which is selling me on that setting because the the paintings and the words are different. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. It's, it's probably because of our advanced age class. People who weren't around to listen to Seventies Prog Rock, I've never seen this kind of art before. They think it's some, <laughs> they're missing they think out. It's some new vision. I think they've never seen such things. <laughs> could be, could be. I mean, it, it used to be that the best art you could ever get for gaming was on the month by month basis. Was on the cover of White Dwarf. Yeah, the White Dwarf cover was individually done and usually had nothing to do with a gaming book 
or anything like that. I don't know where they got that from, but they were always uh, the sort of people who were on the cover of Yes albums as yeah, well. That's right. Rodney Matthews and uh, Chris Achilleos. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great stuff. All good stuff. Oh, blimey. Wait, last week we were in the 90s. We've gone back another 20 years. This is shocking. <laughs> let's, let's, let's bring it up to okay, date then. Well, right, so let's talk about new stuff. Well, one of the things I was going to throw out there, I don't know whether you've got anything for this or not, but we'll, we'll, we'll try and emphasize. Uh, I was thinking about things that are slightly different in terms of art. Uh, so perhaps not your usual. Now, I've got a good and a bad example, so we'll start with a bad one, that one of the more recent cyberpunk games used basically Ken and Barbie dolls and dressed them up and took photographs Ooh. of them as artwork, yeah. which was a brave choice, whoever the art director was. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you've got to marry some or her cojones for doing that, but wow, that was really, really poor. Uh, but it was, you know, it was something different than trying art. So, you know, fair play for experimentation, mm-hmm. I guess, if not execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one would be, I think it's Rain, uh, and I think I'm right in saying it's um, Daniel Solis. He's a, a graphic designer, uh, and I, I'd yeah. have to look up the, the particular style he, he did. But it was, it's an old, old. I think maybe from India, something like that. It's, it's a style where you, you word represents the creature so if you've got an elephant for example you'd use such a style of writing elephant that the, the word on the page would look like an elephant and that sort of thing which yep. so it's not you know it is just like basically words written out in fancy font or or stylized writing rather than full color images of whatever but i thought that was quite mm. effective and like, again i don't know whether people liked it or not but i thought that was a brave choice in picking a particular style that's very unique to that game if I see that sort of stuff I always think of Rain because that's the only place I've seen it certainly in a game is that Rain uh, R-E-I-G-N that's right yeah. the, it's the one roll engine Greg Stoltzy yes yeah so uh, have you got anything like that where it's perhaps not just your stock art or things you can find on DeviantArt is, is there anything else you think of where someone's made a brave choice the kind of art the most recent thing that I've picked up which I think has got the bravest art decision that I've seen in a long time is a game called White Hack which is an OSR game old school renaissance or revolution or whatever you want to call it but it's a it's a hack of the original D&D um, and the brave bit of it well there's two brave things about it first of all the author doesn't do it electronically you can only buy it in hard copy um, he's got a thing for staples and paper and cards and that kind of physical Artifact, which is a bit of a heart back to the past, but it's a good one. I mean, and I appreciate that. The really brave decision is it hasn't got any art in it at all. I mean, not a scrap. It's um, it's very very clean uh, and noticeably so because it's two columns. It's got tables in it, but there's not even so much as a diagram. And it's just really crisp. It's not long. It's a really good read. It's quite an easy read. And you realise the reason it isn't long is not because it's short on rules or setting or anything else like that. It's got a campaign in it and a setting and a complete set of rules. Um, uh, ten levels worth of stuff. So it's it's not particularly short. But by taking out all of the pictures of dwarfs looking wistful at the mountains and elves looking wistfully at their mandolins, you've got a game you can read in an evening. And the really interesting decision then is what do you do with the cover? Because you could you could make a case that lots of books are better without any art, perhaps. You know, that's what novels are for. They don't have any art on the inside, usually, but they've all got a cover. Well, the white hat cover is the character sheet. And that's that's a really brave thing to do because it's got the word white hack right across the middle of it. And the rest of the cover is a blank character sheet. So that's the bit you photocopy and run off and play your game with. So that's maybe dodging the question a little bit because it's, it's maybe it's avoiding art and I don't really know what his 
artistic decision was to not have it but it works it, it's like a palate cleanser from from wading through normally great big heavy books like uh, that I enjoy you know I, I was reading that in the middle of Feng Shui 2 and I think I was looking at something for 13th age as well Eyes of the Stone Thief you know big heavy books full of colour illustrations and, and great stuff and White Hack was a real palate cleanser just because of the absence of art so look it up um, you won't be able to look at it electronically I'm afraid but it's worth a look uh, check it out on the website and see what you think of the cover at least if you like that I think you like the whole thing as normal, I've thought about 13 things to say there, so I'll try and keep at least two or three in my head. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I think, I'll do shorter sections. <laughs> no, 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 it's just that one thing. Um, I think there's, is there like a sci-fi hack of it or something, or a, people doing a science fiction thing called White Star? You might be thinking of, no, uh, that's uh, different. Uh, right, it's okay. different. That's unfortunate, because yeah. what, what I've seen for that is loads of, here's a ship for White Star, and here's a thing for this, and G Plus has just been mm. full of art that fans have made themselves, so I think... I, I had mm. this wistful hope then that people had taken this thing that didn't have any art and then the community's produced it all because God, that sounds amazing. But it, <laughs> even, if, even if not for this, that has happened for stuff like uh, Blades in the Dark, which is on Kickstarter yep. and I don't think it's quite out yet. The quick starts out, but they've not nailed down the final PDF. Mm. But there's already a massive proliferation of stuff, you know, city maps, and they all look beautifully aged and got all this detail on stuff mm. like that. And one of the questions sort of becomes is do, do we even need to bother producing stuff anymore to, to a lot greater or larger extent because people seem to do it and because we've got the internet and social media and all the rest of it and TV part and things like that we seem to have access to all the stuff we, we need you know we, we're not limited mm. to what a publisher says the world should look like something like a, a Kickstarter happens and you've already got 20 different versions of how the city looks because everybody's gone off and done their own one and published it online for free so do we need to bother yep. so much with company art and cartography and all the rest of it? Mm, I think no. I think we don't. Um, uh, but I think it needs to be an option. And and these days, when publishing doesn't have to be just a 300-page piece of dead tree that you go and buy from a shop and bring home on the bus, then then why shouldn't we just have a stack of layered options for the way we want to consume our material? Now, interestingly, 13th Age, I was just mentioning, 13th Age is available in loads of different formats, all the usual ones, and and I got in really early on 13th Age, and the playtesting that I was doing on that was based off the raw text, which was pretty much a Word document, if I remember rightly. And I really loved that game because I could read it and understand it and get playing. Later on, when it came out with all the art and stuff, I'm not a huge fan of the art in that book. And I very rarely reference the 13th Age book that I spent good money on. I go back to my Word doc of the thing, and that's where I get my inspiration from. And that's where I, you know, that's where I plan my games from and the rest of it. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. I'm exactly the sort of person who's going to run this at a con uh, and probably do it as a, as a cool demo game and, and show it off a little bit. What I want from my publisher now is give me it as a Word doc so I can hack it because that's something that everybody wants to do with a game now, but it's quite ridiculously laborious to do sometimes give it to me with additional options that I can download, like an art pack of NPC faces or shots from the scenario, so that I can buy that, and I'll spend money on it because Paizo do it with their card decks for NPCs and enemies and the rest of it, and I've spent money on those but give them to me electronically so that I can compile my own material for the game, because what you're giving me is an engine, which I need to go and drive, or show to my players and 
if what you're doing is filling your book with beautiful portraits, that's nice, but I need them useful. And they're not useful to me in that hardback book. I don't even bring books to my games nights anymore. You don't need to, do no. you? They, they go back on the shelf. But give me something like NPC portraits or plans or maps or location shots like they did way back in the day with Tomb of Horrors, for goodness sake, where you got a little art book separately and you had to put your thumb over the number of the page, you could show people what they could see. So we were doing that in the early 80s, and I think we've forgotten how to do it now, and I think the community can supply better gameable material than sometimes the publishers do. So to answer your question, yes. So, <laughs> or no. Yeah, <laughs> depending on what the question was, then we've all forgotten. Um, yes, what, one of the other things... Uh, to bring up there's, well there's a couple there's uh, Red and Pleasant Land which Zach Smith's done which is kind of OSR and that's got a really good feel to it it's got you know it's, and it's it's one that's got this uh, sort of red canvas cover it's got a little ribbon in it it's got this it looks Alice in Wonderland if it was done by a punk sort of in a modern day I guess which is pretty much what's happened mm. uh, so it's got a very particular style to it um, so that's good and worth looking into because it's it's not intrusive or either uh, and probably even less intrusive is his previous book, Vornheim, which is, again, for D&D or OSR, that kind of stuff. And basically a big bunch of tables and stuff for cities so that you have functional things to do when you're about a city. Rather than having it so that every single location is mapped out and you've got the name of each proprietor, each shop, and what they sell and how much it costs, you've just got a bunch of uh, stuff for your engine to power what happens. And one of the cool bits in that is a page uh, that's sort of like random stuff that happens. But you basically roll your dice on the page. So where it lands will tell you something, and then the number on your dice will give you some other information. So that's a great example of some art that's actually functional as well in terms of it. It's something that you roll on to kind of get a, get an answer out of or get some inspiration from. And the, the number on your dice interacts with it. And I think that that's sort of like some really useful art as opposed to just, like you say, something that's pretty that you put on your wall or, or an art pack thing. I like the idea that it looks nice. It's not dry to read or look at like a table, but actually has some function as well. Well, that's that's you know that that's natural, and it's a really good thing that we can do in this tiny publishing community that is gaming. Is you know PDFs and eBooks and the rest of it are kind of busy changing publishing over there in the mainstream world, um, and that's fine, and they'll do what they do. But one of the things that the major publishing houses are having to do now is reinvent what a book looks like in order to make it something you want to have in the house. And a five to six pounds paperback novel is not going to compete with a Kindle download, and I think it's going to be rapidly becoming true for RPGs too, because we can make... And we love those gorgeous physical artifacts with the ribbons in them and the embossed fonts and all the beautiful art and the glossy paper. And people pay a premium for that, and why not? So I think with art, I'm, I'm tending towards go large or go minimal. And, and don't muck about in the middle, you know. Make it classic, make it easy to use, make it virtually a Word document. Or make it beautiful like Vornheim and Red and Pleasant Land really are. And I know that those guys in in lamentations they put a lot of effort into making beautiful physical books and it pays off because you just want to have them on your shelf and you can't resist picking them up um, and that's better than the years of d20 soft hardbacks which just you know cluttered every gaming store and every gaming shelf for a long time and there's just nothing there there's nothing there to grab you either from a nostalgia point of view or from anything point of view it's just a bit a bit turgid 
because they all look the same after a while. Yeah, I think I think having art as 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 artifacts is good as well. You mentioned sort of character portraits and things like that. Uh, I spoke about Paul Bourne a little bit earlier. Uh, if you look at his stuff for um, Hot Water, for example, that's got things yeah, in there where you've yeah. got like uh, posters with uh, government declarations or rules of the occupation or things like that. And that, as well as being a box if you was your reading, it is something that you could print off and slam in front of your players saying like you see this poster on the wall or, or that sort of thing I think anything we can do to make art and games gameable or useful in some way rather than just like ooh that mm-hmm. looks pretty I think that's probably a future for it to be honest yeah I think so and we do this in cons as well don't we you know you and I have prepared millions of con games and and you've said to me many times you probably put more effort into the character sheets than you do into the rest of the scenario put together and that's not even like generating the numbers and the words that go on it it's generating the pretties um and you know i mean and you've got skills don't get me wrong um but there's plenty of other people out there with mad skills as well and some of the amateur stuff and i use amateur loosely because this the stuff that these guys and gals are producing is beautiful and and way better than you would get off the company website i mean you know D when it hit its fifth edition they did a character sheet competition there was some incredibly evocative stuff out there some of it was too weird for them to use but you know it's doing your own character sheet now is is probably something that you do as well as generating a character or hacking the game to whatever you want to do you always want to start mucking about with photoshop because it's there and we can all become artists now can't we yeah i find it quite amusing when you go onto a company forum or something and you'll get some guy going oh you haven't given us a character sheet yet i can't play this game etc and it's like just <laughs> put in game name character sheet into google images and you'll get hundreds because like, like you say people around the world are making all kinds of things in all kinds of different languages mm. and using art and layers and black and white and full colour and uh, you know themed by some movie or something there's just tons of stuff out there so I think art is still important um, and I think it's still important in books and um, you know bringing us right up to date I was looking at um, Will Wheaton's uh, web show at the moment Titan's Grave um, where he gets some of his friends who are all actors and he, he does like a, a shoot of a role playing session round the table you can see people playing a role-playing game rolling dice and uh, imagining stuff up and and all the rest of it which which should make for terrible tv um it's you know let, let's be honest it, it's a pretty good game it's not stunning it's not awful he's, he's doing a decent job with some fairly vanilla stuff and and i don't mean to sound harsh when i say that but it's you know anyone who's role-played for donkey's years could probably think of doing something better but we never will because we're not as um you know we don't have the opportunities or the talent to be fair so he's doing a good job with what he's got but one of the things that really does make it work is the art that he uses for his Titan's Grave game gets front and centre because it's a TV production. So you get to see the pieces of art full screen on your laptop uh, or whatever it is you're watching it on and they'll zoom in on it and they'll make little bits glow in post-production and they'll make stuff move around. And it's actually not a bad watch. In fact, it's a pretty good watch. And it makes a million times more sense than if you were just listening to it as an audio. Because as a GM, he, he doesn't muck around. He gets straight to it. There's not a huge amount of description there. And his players aren't saying, you know, what can I see over there? Or what can I hear? Or can I assume such and such is in the corner? You know, it's pretty dry as narration goes. But the artwork really does help. And, and some of those pictures have really fired my imagination. And they've really helped with the conversation I'm hearing on the screen so I think art is still really important and and I'm 
I'm really always thinking about how much visual I can get onto the table during a game and in different ways of doing it it isn't just like opening the book at page 86 and saying it looks like that because I think that would have worked 20 years ago but you know there's better ways of getting your visuals out there now yeah and I think that's one of the things that's sort of moving away from the topic slightly but something that people start mentioning more and more in the books and I think we've always tried to do is put more into your game than just what something looks like uh, and mm. certainly people can be a little bit dry when they describe things as well and know well, it's got six legs and it's about 14 feet tall and it's like well come on give us something exciting about this huge demon but also how's it smell mm. and what claws in the back of your throat and you know the sounds or you know there's oh it's got its place uh, I mean I think it's a little bit a, a lazy GM trick to just slap a picture down and leave it at that you kind of need to add in some of the extra senses and flavours around the place to really make it sort of stand out and uh, you know, for, as a, from a craft point of view, a gem craft point of view, really bring it to life. I think. So, do you think if you had um, just a, a big bunch of props and stuff, is that an excuse for being a little bit lazy? Do you think, or does it lead to that just because it's easier to throw things about rather than? Yeah, well, it depends on the game. Um, I think uh, that yeah, it can be a bit lazy, but that that's okay because you know, GMing games doesn't have to be work. It is, you know, relatively speaking, a pastime. So shortcuts to everybody getting on the same page are generally speaking a good idea. But it does depend on the game. Now, if you and I were playing a fantasy game and I said we were in a tavern and there was a wizard in the corner playing chess with someone and there's a ranger sitting by the fire and there's a halfling behind the bar serving beer, I don't think either of us are going to need any pictures, you know, because we've got so much to call on from our collective geek memory and even if what you're seeing is slightly wrong you might see a female halfling behind the bar and I meant a male halfling and it'll only matter if we have a chat later but do you know what we're fine but if you take it up to the sci-fi end of the spectrum or into any kind of weird game where it might be multi-dimensional or literally in another planet or even something modern day but just slightly bizarre and out of your comfort zone in part of the world you might not know or a piece of history you might not know then all of a sudden those little clues that you might use as the GM to try and describe something to people it might be falling upon ignorant ears um, and I don't think you'd get away with saying you see a starship in the port because the six people around the table one of them is going to see the Enterprise one of them is going to see the Prometheus they're just all going to be different and and it actually is going to matter because guaranteed they're going to climb into it and try and fly it off so you know I think it depends on the game and that's one of the things I did like about the Titan's Grave stuff. When it showed me the pictures, I got a sense of what the world looked like, which I wasn't getting from Will Wheaton's narration. Yeah. So it, I, I do think it depends. Um, yeah, some games will really benefit from visual cues, cues or clues, I guess. And then other ones, where you might be playing some kind of mystery game maybe half the mystery is that it does all look different to the six people around the table and and you are playing in a in a maybe a dream realm where it's appropriate to not show really good illustrations of it but instead you know some mood pieces might be better if you were going to do it at all so i think it depends yeah and i think there's um the stuff like i ran um cthulhu game and i had a scene where a, a bayaki basically attacks the players now I think we mm. we both know that as soon as you say a Bayaki or a D1 or whatever people have got the stock image in their head and it leaves all kind of terror or whatever because they've seen so many pictures and read about it so much but instead I just described 
my version of one. And they all got really worried. Mm. And, you know, I think it made the scene really uh, exciting for the players and, and interesting and all frightened for their characters' lives, etc. An odd perception mm. after that was one of them said, like, oh, he's a Barakio, he explained it wrong, or he didn't describe it correctly, or sort of that sort of feedback, <laughs> which is weird. Because I thought, well, if I had have done it as the picture is in the book, then it would have suddenly lost all its kind of fear of mystique. So while it's good yeah. to have reference points, yeah. I think, as well, it's sometimes good to move away from them so that you don't have the familiarity which can breed content in, in a certain way. Well, definitely in those monster games as well, where, where, you know, the classic old film tricks of never showing the whole beast in one go, or not till the end at least. I mean, it's a classic for a reason. And, and you don't want to, like, blow your cover, especially as a Cthulhu GM, because, you know, you don't see that many people who've never played it before. Everybody's bringing some baggage to the table. And, and it, which reminds me, going back to the art thing in the books, um, a few years ago when we were at Tentacles in Germany, um, I remember seeing was it, it was either German or French forgive me uh, for our continental listeners but one of the editions of Call of Cthulhu the art for all the monsters in it was not direct illustrations of the monsters it was art as painted or sculpted or drawn by the people in the setting who would have seen the monsters now, I'm not explaining that very well but imagine a picture of a vase that had been painted with some kind of shogoth that someone had seen back in the day that was the illustration or a painting on a car on a cave wall or a carving made out of bits of wax and sticks and so on so they were second-hand representations and that's a bit more like it isn't yes. it i mean that that's evocative in loads of different ways and and takes the the very notion of of taking the mystery out of something and puts it back where it belongs in the supernatural and weird yeah i think that is you know it's tying it right in with the game it's the sort of thing that you investigators see they're much more likely to see a, a statuette of cthulhu than actually see him himself and I think that sort of representation is really mm. cool all that French uh, mm. there's was, was French and there was the, the German Pegasus stuff as well uh, they're all amazing books uh, I think it's quite mm. it's it's almost makes me feel a little bit embarrassed for American and or British and other people's books you know when you look at the stunning production and the clever ideas like you say that sort of like second hand art view of, of the world there's, there seems to be like little use uh, little excuse sorry some of the stuff we see today, and I don't know a lot of it's just because it's the way art has always been. Like you said, you know, we have art because there's always been some. And I think there's kind of a lazy kind of by the play do it like we've done before attitude in many ways, and it's taking some either yeah. uh, foreign companies or fan art or things like that to take it in new directions, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's still going on. I think you know the technology and is moving on, and publishing is moving on, and I'm glad to see people taking a few. They're not even risks, are they? But just doing something a little bit different yeah. with the visual presentation of their books, even if it's just like shrinking it down to digest size, going landscape format, all that stuff that you just couldn't get away with um, not that long ago because your friendly local game store just wouldn't accept a square book. It just wouldn't do it because it's not going to fit on the shelves. But now that we don't have game stores so much anymore, everything's up for grabs, and, and I think that makes our books look better. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the sort of in Nobles coffee table book type thing and all that kind of stuff. All, all yeah, you've got the options, I guess. I, I guess I, on the Cthulhu thing as well, I was going to mention um, Dennis Detwiller, or Detwiler, uh, but his art and dream stuff and certainly Delta Green, that was good in terms of the, like you were mentioning with the with Alien or something, we only see a snippet of the monster and stuff. Mm. He's got some really good pieces where you just see, it'll just be like some guy in a lab coat who could be a scientist and you, you don't really think too much of it and then you notice the stains on the coat or the bit of blood under his eye or you know yeah. stuff like that and even things where there are 
big tentacle monsters or whatever, you'll just see a tentacle and then there'll be some guy on the ground dead mm. and some other agent screaming his eyes out looking in absolute terror, firing his gun off meaninglessly and it's focusing on the characters and what's happening to them and that I think they really do capture what, what should happen in the game. There's no point in having... I know they have it in for fun in Cthulhu these days, I'm not sure if it's in the latest edition, but we've got the size comparison chart. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's cool and all, <laughs> but I don't really need to see Cthulhu, it's stood next to my investigator. I should really know that's all over at that point. There should, you know, it's kind of one of, Yeah, if you're that close, it's game yeah, over. <laughs> but it's one of those weird geek things that we kind of like want to know what the layout of the Starship Enterprise is on a technical level and where the wiring diagrams are and stuff like that. But it really shouldn't matter, but sometimes it just sort of like... There's something in the back of minds wants to see it and check it out and know the you know the dimensions and the all the detail. Yeah, Call of Cthulhu's always had to tread that line. Uh, I think you know as a line, it's um, it's been responsible for some glorious artifacts like the French and German editions and like everything for Delta Green, which goes into the the documents that they use for mm-hmm. that as well. You know, not not just the illustrations, but anything with top secret stamped across it or classified and coffee rings in the corner. You know, that, that's all you know, grist to my mill. I love that kind of stuff. And and Cthulhu's always done a great art direction job um, and Chaosium did too you know their books always looked top draw the Call of Cthulhu covers there's not a bad one among them um, one of them I think is ooh, edition 5.5 big bluish looking one with Cthulhu rising up out the ocean and a and a tiny little boat the boat that eventually buys it spoiler alert <laughs> but that you know just for scale that's ah, a great picture but they've had to do it in a game where you don't really want to see everything face on as we were saying before, you know, they want to keep the mystery. And I think their art direction has been superb over decades. They're, they're, that That's generated some really, really good stuff. And some great colour plates as well in some of their older material yeah. too, where it was there. And it was there just to look pretty. It didn't do much else but look pretty, but it was bloody good. And this is, of course, the same game that generated handouts as an art form as yeah. well. You know, like a horror on the Orient Express and uh, Master of Nyarlathotep, all of that stuff where half the book was handouts. And there's no greater thrill than handing a business card over to a player and saying, that's yours. You know, use a paperclip, stick it on your character sheet, take it home with you. I mean, we, we've got friends who would just run around screaming with delight if we give them artifacts yeah. like that to keep. Uh, it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving. So, yeah, there's, there's, there has been some great stuff out there where the art has really added to the product. And, and I think we're sort of coming to an agreement here that if it adds to the product, fantastic, and it can do and it should do, sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, it's just filler. Yeah. Um, and, you know, white space or a shorter book might have been a better idea. Yeah, and another sort of good example tying into that is the uh, the Slay Industry stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, had that. You know, arguably do with a good edit, to be honest, the text. All very interesting, but I doubt I can read it all now going in cold. But that had stuff like your missions were actually literally on a piece of paper, the VPNs that you got. You go and get your green and your blue, mm. whatever it was you chose, then you hand that over and you got little tick boxes for how much you're going to get paid and per squad up a member and all that kind of stuff. And that was really great for just having in front of the players. If they, if they got sort of like off track or started doing something else, then one of them was just saying, I'm ready, what we're supposed to be doing here. And then like, you've literally got the mission in front of you. And then all the search and seizure warrants and stuff mm. like that are all good little artifacts. Uh, but one of the things I really liked as well was the, the weapons bit had stats for calibers of guns and stuff and all, all those sort of important details for the game on one or two pages. And then those pages and pages are basically a gun catalogue, an armour catalogue, and mm. it was pictures and it was endorsements from celebrities and it was all this kind of stuff. 
And I think that was like, you know, that's basically like handing a, a high-end Argus catalog to your players, saying, you know, here's, here's all the guns you've got. And everyone wanted a, a Blair Blitzer. Nobody knew what it did. Mm. There's not a stand anything going, this does more damage or has better armor penetration. But the fact you've got a picture of it, and then you're told there's a two-week waiting list, and it sold you like someone's trying to actually sell you the gun. Everybody wanted one. And, and that's sort of like using a hardware catalog uh, as a, a, an artifact and having some pictures as you would in that thing anyway I think was uh, a really good and clever idea and it would work really well yeah yeah do you know what I mean I had Slay on my list as well because uh, again it's not my favourite setting particularly but it was a stylish looking book um, and you know we'll probably get into we're getting into the realms now of like you know let's pick our faves um, and I was thinking about great covers because I still think a cover is important in a role playing book of course it is and and I, I, even though you only ever see the spine when it's on your shelf, <laughs> but my actual all-time favourite role-playing game cover is for the Karma Sourcebook for Slay Industries, which, look it up, uh, I think it's by Philip Bond. It looks like his work, who was an artist of around that time. He used to work with all kinds of people like Jamie Hewlett, who went on to do the artwork for Gorillas, stuff like that. And the thing I like about it is, as you said, mate, it's, it's a mock-up of a magazine cover. And it's done in a slightly cartoony way, but it is a magazine cover. And I can't remember the name of the character. I'm sure you do, but uh, is she called Delia? Yes, I could yeah. be wrong on that. But <laughs> she is. All right. Okay, cool. Um, and she's looking over her shades, and she's kind of crouching down in a bit of a sort of a vogue pose. And, you know, Karma is produced as a source book, but it looks like a magazine. But she's got a bullet hole in the middle of her head. And it's not immediately obvious. It's just not but that, that feeds into some of the stuff inside the book and it, it's just a great great image that's specifically done for that book it's in no way a stock image and must have had very clear art direction i'm pretty sure the artist and the writers would have been good mates and had a couple of pints and they decided how how it would work and um and i think it's stunning um and i love it and it's one of the very few that if i could get it as a great big print i'd have it in a frame well, there you go. Has you got any great covers, or are we getting into the realms of what's the best now? Uh, yeah, well, there's so much to pick from, depending on your mood and all the rest of it, isn't it? I think there's a couple of minimalist mm. ones that I really want to sort of shout out. Uh, one's Legend of the Five Rings, which I think the first edition of didn't have a great cover, but had some really good uh, black and white art inside, which was of the style of feudal Japan. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. a couple of great images in there. One was um, some guy uh, at an armourer's, basically, buying some a uh, sword and some armor and things like that. So that was a double praise spread. And then as a call-out box on the next page, you had a little, little silhouette and then a key telling you what each piece was and what they were. And they, nice. they had that again with uh, some, I think some of the equipment and some other things as well. I thought that was a really good meme as well because at first it was like you look at other role-playing books and go, oh, yeah, some dude buying some armor, that's cool. But then when you got all the, hmm. the proper names from it and all that, that was really nice. I preferred cover-wise something I think it was like fourth edition, and that's just got a red sash across it and um, a katana or a samurai sword. And I thought that's great cover. That, yeah, that's I know. Good. Yep. So the other one was I think we mentioned it in one of our early podcasts, but um, in nominee, which the heart the oh, yeah. books had a, a white and a black sort of full leather red cover. Pete, our good friend's got the white one because he's nice and being evil. I've got the black one. And it's got this uh, sort of red, glittery, inverted cross stamped on the front of it. But apart from that, just the old black uh, faux leather, which, is, you know, that's just cool. It, it just looks good. Yeah. There's not much time you spend looking at the front of the book, so you don't need too much on it, I don't think. And the inside's got its own style. Yeah. But that, that just, you know, you pick that book up and you just nod to yourself, put it back down again and think, yeah, cool. Yeah, it's iconic, isn't it? And actually, in Nominee is one of those books where I think they had a single artist or a very small stable. Yeah. 
uh, and again I can't remember the name apologies but um, it's quite cartoony looked a bit like Hellboy style that kind of thing but yeah good looking books um, yeah and I remember that and I think the iconic cover of, of all the ones you've mentioned is, is just you know, a good thing to have on a cover and it goes all the way back to my favourite iconic cover Does again doesn't have any art on it is Traveller yeah. it's the very first one beautiful minimalist design just black because it's space a single red line on it and just you know four or five lines of script um and much like glorantha i struggled to get into the traveler setting because nobody could really show me any decent pictures of it and i couldn't quite figure out where everyone's walking around carrying swords <laughs> and revolvers yeah. but that cover didn't send me down a sci-fi direction so you know it could have been traveler could be whatever you want it to be because it it's that and it was great for that and those iconic covers do that to you don't they you know they just sort of suck you in because you wonder what's on the inside traveler didn't have much else on the inside art wise but that was a great cover yeah i like the iconic ones mate i like i like that uh legend of five rings we only talk about i like tour of darkness for savage yes. worlds which is another iconic one where you've got a camouflage jacket for a vietnam soldier and there's a blood splash on the pocket and that's the silhouette of the soldier it's, yeah, clever. it's clever yeah. and cool okay what about internal stuff then mate so overall books then for good art good things to have on your shelf that you would pick up and maybe browse through well um old school hell on earth talking of the, the sort of you know ah. the pinnacle stuff and i think deadlands as well uh, one of the really good things they had there was uh, archetypes so there's not uh, classes per se in that game but they have ideas mm. for what your character might be that you build with all your individual components and you get uh, a dozen or so full colour templates of whoever, the old soldier, the law dog, the Indian brave. Uh, and that was, mm. you know, the, the same artist as well, which I like. And you've got a full, you know, full plate image of lots of different types of characters. So if you've got your players who are struggling to work out what to do or what should be or who are they in this setting, spreading them out on the table and say, pick one of them. You know, that's, I think that's good functional art, consistent and, uh, yeah. yeah, all really evocative. And, much more than looking at a list of classes, you flip through some pictures and go, who do you want to be? And you pick, well, six of them, but I'm just going to narrow it down a bit now. How about yourself? Yeah, that's, that's, well, it's an interesting pick, that one, because like, brace yourself for a quick history lesson, but that, that art you've just mentioned wouldn't exist were it not for a single piece of art, which is, I think, you know, maybe not famously, but Shane Lacey Hensley, who was the inventor of Deadlands, the, the whole trilogy of games, he started writing Deadlands based off seeing a piece of work by an artist called Brom, which was an undead cowboy with his revolvers, um, which was painted for either another game line or something completely independent. It was Deadlands didn't exist at the time, but Shane Hensley saw that image and it gave him enough inspiration to write Deadlands at all. So it then goes massively full circle that he's on, you know, the second of a trilogy of games and you're looking at the art for the characters and it inspires you to stick in front of your players. And, and that's the power of a piece of art. Um, so, yeah, so there, there's him. And, and speaking of Brom, you know, he did, he was one of the, the touchstone artists for Dark Sun for second edition D&D &D and beyond. And, and his stuff is very evocative. There's a lot of people like the work of Brom um, and he's still going and he's still doing some you know some really incredible stuff which which looks different to anybody else's stuff and i'd recommend all of that um but my my actual favorite book for art is is a real throwback um it's dungeon crawl classics which 
it's got a terrible name dungeon crawl classic so i don't know why they called it that it does put people off um but as an artifact it's it's quite a big book i don't normally go for those if you took all of the art out of it the book would probably be less than 30 pages it is absolutely jammed with it i can't think that there's a two pages in a row without some big illustration um, and sometimes the illustrations are just double page spreads or or three or four page spreads and then you get back to the text again and it's all specially commissioned it's all designed to be black and white line art it's supposed to capture not an old school feel because old school art was largely rubbish it was done in crayons you know <laughs> treat yourself to some really old school pictures if you want on the internet they're horrible but this is like you know technically really good stuff done by people like peter mullen and so on and it's it's pictures that kind of evoke loads of memories for me of being like a teenage kid and being able to fall into a picture because it had so much detail in it you know a double page spread of a battle where it's almost like where's wally in that every combatant is doing something different there's tiny little details you don't see the first or even the second time round. And then you flip the page and it's gone from one of those enormous fight scenes just down to something really simple like an adventurer with a lantern in a, in a forest full of mushrooms. And the lighting in it is really creepy and weird. And the book is just great for that. And the publisher has spent proper money on getting exactly what he wanted. And you know that it was really heavily art directed. He just said, look, I want all of this madness. And and it's really pushed up the price of the book and he's making a far less margin on it. I'm sure he is, but he's generated an entire game this is joseph goodman based entirely on his own personal likes and that's what modern day publishers can do and i, and I applaud that it's not for everyone it'll never work for everyone but it's a great book to go through and and he's actually making good money back off of it because he's published it in about four or five different covers and people will collect them now because they appreciate the art and the graft that's gone into these things you know leather covers bookmarks just more cool stuff because why not it's i don't think it's acceptable anymore to just put something out that's just got you know a slightly glossy cover and some black and white art that you've got your mate to do for you so you know that's my favorite for loads of different reasons mostly nostalgia uh but i, I highly recommend if you get a chance to leave through one in a game store have a little look see what you think good stuff i think the only one i can think of at the minute to, to probably give a shout out to is uh, the monsters and other childish things line Ooh, yeah. and there's i think it's uh rob mansberger did most of the art for that and, and benjamin bo's uh writing's absolutely awesome you should get the books if for no other reason than those two things but it's slightly childish art in that the game is basically about kids who've got these uh what to the parents are imaginary monsters but to the kids are very real and can actually do stuff and get into trouble all the time and get the kids into trouble so the artwork being quite cartoonish in ways fits that perfectly and then there's some really nice details like uh, on one page uh, near the front it's got a felt-tip pen drawing uh, of a girl and a monkey uh, when you turn the page over mm. it's got the bleed through as if you would do like because the pen sucks through the page Clever. so they've printed that on as well and Clever. I think if I remember correctly I might be wrong on this but I think that image was actually done by Shane's daughter or something like that so there's you know there's actual personal touch there as well yeah good stuff yeah i remember those books as well i've got a copy of that and um that's just being a bit unusual but having a vision seeing it all the way through and really taking care over the way each page looks including the back yeah. half of it yeah that, that, that's good yeah i've got one more um which is an artist rather than a book in particular um i will happily look at john hodgson's work all day long 
Um, he does most of Cubicle 7 stuff now. You'll see it on the covers of The One Ring and Lone Wolf and some World War Cthulhu stuff. It, it's, just, oh, it's just nice. It's just really, really well done stuff, and it's very evocative, and he always does, I think, a really good job of, of pulling the themes together. I mean, The One Ring gets a lot of shout-outs on this show, um, and it's a game I've never played, but it's notable for loads of reasons for setting for system, and, and I think the look of those those covers is a big part of it too because you've got to be good to pull off Tolkien-esque art that's not for everybody you know you've got to be really really good at your craft to get that done right in a way that doesn't immediately send the fanboys raging Uh, and John Hodgson does a really really good job with his covers so yeah look out for that that's a recommendation yeah the other thing uh, is probably partly his direction partly to sort out the right people the rest of it but I was thinking to myself not too long ago about uh, he's supposed to be, you know, he's this art, well, not supposed to be, he is the art director and he's got all these other game lines going, all the rest of it. How does he find time to do all these mm-hmm. internal drawings and all the rest of it as well? And then I just looked at the credits and there's three or four different artists. But to flick through the <laughs> book, you know, you can, if you look properly, you can see a difference in styles, but they all look very similar in terms of style. Obviously, each artist has got his own yeah. individual uh, flair or whatever else, but to have a bunch of people that are all working in the same direction, so to speak, as well, and keep everything internally consistent with how the front of it looks and all the other books look I think that's a great achievement yep yeah I agree mate I agree I mean I do like variety across my books but I, I like it to be obvious variety um, you know going all the way back to the original player's handbook which is kind of where we started there's cartoons and full page spreads and landscapes and so on they might be by different artists but what you want as well is it all wants to give off a vibe um, and you don't want that kind of clash and, and you did sometimes see that clash in, in those great settings we were talking about in a previous cast they often had quite clashing art I found you know, it's difficult to like all of it um, you could always find something because for some reason they use 20 or 30 different artists across the line sometimes um, but yeah you don't want that clash and, and, and I think the modern day books these days are getting a really good vision across that i can't think of many books that have made me fold it, the cover back on it and put it back on the shelf just from the look you know games are getting really good at this sort of stuff nowadays with one exception actually and it's a bit of a strange one is the the, the book where i got most disappointed by its art was of all things was the marvel role-playing game released with the cortex system um it's not it didn't live on the shelves very long because marvel pulled the license on it but it was a fairly big deal um, and a big release and of all the games to have poor art you would not expect it to be a Marvel Universe game uh, but for some reason it must just have been part of the licensing deal they just gave them some really poor almost like clip art quality imagery to put all the way through their books and when you've got like you know the best part of 50 years of fantastic imagery you would hope to call upon clearly it had to be a licensing thing and they weren't going to give them the good stuff but you know that you'd look up the rules for climbing and there'd be a picture of spider-man climbing a wall and it's like a picture of spider-man I <laughs> um it was like a google image search uh gone wrong or you just took the first one no matter what it was it, now it, it didn't work for me at all it might be a, a thing because it's on pdf i never saw it in real life but that was a huge disappointment but not that big because i can always go and buy a marvel comic that's quite right you've got plenty as it is uh, well, yeah, we, we're kind of up on time now, I think. If anybody's still with us, they won't be for much longer. Sure. But I think one final point I'll mention is uh, the use of uh, images from films or whatever. So if you've got the Firefly role-playing game or that sort of thing, they've just stuck a lot of clip shots from the TV series, the film, or the book. And I, I prefer some 
drawn art, if you know what I mean. And I think that's the thing. I do I too. I prefer that in the the Star Wars books, for example, when they've got a, you know, yep. they've drawn a stormtrooper or whatever else, or a walkie or something like that. I'd much prefer that than to some stock free frame of Chewbacca or something. No, totally agreed. Age of Rebellion looks a million times better for its art, um, and the, the the classic D six Star Wars looked a million times worse for photos from George Lucas's Polaroids. <laughs> Not good. Quite right. Okay, well, I think we're up on time now, Baz. So we'll have to wrap it up for this week. Any final thoughts from you? No, it's been a good one. I think art's still a viable part of the of the product. It's a viable part of the process, um, and it'll be really interesting to see what what physical RPG books look like in even five years from today. If we're still around, we'll let you know. Okay, then. Well, that's it for what would the smart party do this week? And as usual, keep your comments, questions, or suggestions flooding in, and we'll do our best to address them in future episodes. So it's goodbye from me. Yeah, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.